Hello, friends. This is Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy with Catholic Studies Academy. Uh, welcome back to Take Every Thought Captive, uh, our um, podcast where we look at the 2,000-year-old Catholic intellectual tradition, as well as uh, philosophical issues, important issues uh, of the day. Uh, today, I'm joined by Mr. Joe Grossheim, graduate student uh, at St. Thomas University, University of St. Thomas in Houston. Uh, also joined by my colleague, uh, Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, theologian, lecturer in theology with Catholic Studies Academy. And uh, we're especially pleased to be joined today by uh, Bob Gorman. Uh, Bob, are you currently teaching anywhere? Well, I'm a, I'm a part-time teacher at John Paul II, St. John Paul II Catholic High School, but retired from my university responsibilities about four years ago. That's right. And you, uh, you focus on international relations there, is that correct? Yes. Okay, great, great. So I'm so pleased to have all of you guys uh, here uh, to talk about uh, um, uh, an important article, uh, I think, an interesting article, provocative article that's gotten a lot of discussion uh, that was published in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, And this uh, article expressed a a survey or talked about a survey that the Wall Street Journal had done in um, collaboration with the University of Chicago uh, to... um, sort of look at American attitudes about certain values that have long defined sort of American society and American hopes and kind of dreams and so forth, right? Um, And those, uh, uh, you know, I would say that they're especially important to the American culture, but, you know, probably important to other cultures. But they looked at uh, percentages of those who say uh, that patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement or money are very important to them, right? So they were looking at how do Americans value, right, these goals, I guess you could say, or these kinds of these activities or 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 attitudes. Patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement, and then interestingly, money, right? Uh, those were the, the ones that they laid out there and they were asking how many Americans find these to be very important. And it compares answers from 1998 to answers from the present, right? So, you know, a little over 20 years, right? And what you find, and and this is really interesting, is across four of those categories, uh, a dramatic decrease in importance, right? That is patriotism, uh, in in 1998, patriotism was highly valued by over 60% of the population. Now it's down into the 30s, like it's less than 40% think that patriotism is important. Religion, right? Uh, again, this is in 1998. You know, you don't think of 1998 as the age of faith, right? Or something like that, right? But nevertheless, in 1998, it was, again, very important, eight, over 60%. Now, under 40%, again, down into the 30s, like 39% think that religion is very important from 65% in 1998. That's a dramatic decrease given that period of time, right? Again, and then I think for myself, I think this is a maybe even more alarming or as alarming is, is having children, right? The idea of having children, the importance of having children. In 1998, 60% of Americans thought that that was very important. Now it's, it's less than 30%. Right. Uh, And then we have something similar with community involvement. The only thing that went up in value, right, 
was money, which is, I think, just really interesting, right? All of these other things go from being very important to not not so much, but all, but from 1998 to now, um, it was about 30% thought money was very important. Now, almost 50%, right? So it's like, it's not quite proportionate, but almost, right? Uh, in terms of the growth. The, uh, the one other factor um, that was really interesting is the degree of fragmentation. So on various issues uh, um, connected with diversity and equity and inclusion, your, your DEI stuff, um, you see a radical difference in uh, Republican and Democratic attitudes, right? Um, you, know, uh, um, it, you know, have we done enough to advance diversity in the workplace? Have we done too much? Right. A lot of Republicans, in fact, a majority of Republicans say we've done too much, uh, uh, whereas, a you know, that's hardly the case with respect to the uh, Democrats. So there's a really deep and strong divide uh, over those issues as well. I, as a political philosopher, I look at that I'm thinking about family. I'm thinking about the com I'm thinking about the common good with respect to patriotism. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, Religion, of course, being important, even just from a philosophical point of view, you know, Aristotle says that you should build the temples first, right? <laughs> uh, of course, as a Christian, I have a you know, uh, stronger conviction about that, but even from a philosophical point of view, the decline of religion, and then the decline of having children, right, seems to me, how, like, like they say, alarming, right? Um, because that's literally, you're dying. I was discussing this with my own kids this morning, and, uh, they were like, how's your country going to survive? And I was like, exactly. <laughs> you know? So these seem to me evident marks of decline of a civilization, of a, of a country, and maybe even a kind of a an epoch or a civilization, because this is no longer, this isn't unique to the United States. We're kind of catching up, I feel like, to Europe. You know, like this, that kind of happened in Europe maybe a couple decades ago. And now it's here, right? Which seems to be a pretty consistent pattern in, in our Western intellectual history mm -hmm. in the modern period. You know, it starts in like even say Protestant liberalism. It, you know, it starts in the 19th century in Europe. It doesn't get to here until the early 20th century, right? Kind of thing. But uh, I'd just like to open it up here uh, to you, gentlemen, uh, for comments. Uh, Bob, we'll start with you um, uh, since you're our, our guest here today. Uh, what's your initial sort of reaction? thoughts about about this data well it conforms to my own personal experience and observation over the last 20 or 30 years mm. um, that that this isn't really something new this has been in the work for works for a long time it's probably a fruit a bad fruit of the enlightenment mm -hmm. uh, the kind of individualism and skepticism that became so widespread and in, in what now can be perceived as more of a endarkenment than <laughs> enlightenment, um, and that claim to be to be carrying out the heritage of of the of Greco-Roman classical philosophy, but in fact, mm -hmm. in many ways, was undercutting the the pillars of religion and family and community life um, and personal responsibility and virtue. Um, and I, uh, I, th I think one of the factors that's involved in this, perhaps the rapidity of this particular decline, is the global communications, mm -hmm. uh, vast and rapid increase in technology. Kids yeah. today can have in their pocket information immediately accessible to them, both good and right. bad. 
Right, right. With the, you know, just a couple of uh, touches on the phone. And uh, that, that's a world of distraction and it's a world of noise and it's a world of contention and falsehood in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And we know now from other uh, studies that have been done that it also is a source of increasing isolation where one right. withdraws into it. Social media has the opposite of effect of what it was claimed to be. In other words, to make form mm -hmm. communities far and wide. Aristotle may have been right that you have to have communities only can flow and friendship can only flow when you have immediate contact with people and where there's long-term accountability and commitment mm -hmm. involved rather than this very superficial and oftentimes false uh, presentation of oneself to, to the world through social media. The other thing that concerns me, and this is something I've been looking at for quite a number of years, is the general satisfaction surveys that we've had that go all the way back in this country mm. to the 1950s, and I think from Europe, it's not too too long after that. Okay. Um, and it, it, it sort of a, assesses people's happiness levels and attempts to determine from the from the demographics of it, you know, what are, what are the what's associated with happiness. Mm. Arthur Brooks has done a lot of really terrific work on, on this in his books on gross uh, national happiness and, mm. um, you know, who is really more generous, conservatives or, or, or liberals. And the, the findings there are pretty stable over a long period of time that the people who are happiest are people who are uh, tied to family life, who have right. yeah. committed relationships, people who go to church, who hear the message of charity week in and week out, and who therefore are more generous in their mm. giving towards those in need in all kinds of ways, both with sure. their time and their, their resources and money. And, um, and also hard work. work, work that gives us a sense of value, especially where we can see that that work is serving the needs of the community and other people, including our own family and the satisfaction that comes uh, from that. Yeah. So it's really pretty disturbing, the data that, that's in this study, because it's, it actually mm. it shows that what's happening right. and what may be a cause of the wider spread unhappiness today and the sense of social isolation is precisely the loss of the things that afford that. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, fruitful work, giving of oneself, just mm -hmm. practice, mm -hmm. and, and family life, which... You know, all the, the, that, that set of data just, uh, I think, when combined with what we see in this study, indicates we're not just dealing with uh, a fluke here, right. a statistical fluke, but a real sign of cultural decline, which bodes yeah. badly, not only for the future of countries, but for the future happiness of individuals. Yeah, that's uh, that, so, yeah, uh, it's interesting. So you really... You're positing there is we can see a correlation, right, between the decline in in personal satisfaction and a decline in these things, which ironically enough, right, I mean, one of the the primary values that our culture holds out to people is you should care mainly and primarily about your personal satisfaction. Right? But then we've ended up undermining apparently the very things that actually contribute to it. Well, right? by the, by adopting that very value. That's right. Exactly. It's full of paradox and irony there, right? It's it's uh, it's remarkable. Dr. Bulzi Kelly, what what are, what are your impressions here, thoughts about uh, about this uh, uh, these findings? Yeah. So one of the things that comes to mind is um, anecdotally, I've noticed that among teenagers, 
the word patriotism or patriot or patriotic is not in their vocabulary. Mm. It's literally not a word that they know. They have to ask for a definition. Really? Um, I mean, I'm not saying in every instance, but I've, in speaking with teenagers, I have on several occasions encountered a person who lacks that word in their vocabulary. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I find that, yeah, I find that like, at well, the first time it happened, I genuinely thought I was being like they were just kind of trolling me. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> but after several instances, I realized, no, this is for real. They actually don't know this word. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, Why do you think that is? I mean, what, what gives? Well, I mean, I think, that, that was I think part it, of my basic vocabulary as a kid. Right. But it's, we, it seems, I guess we just don't use it. It doesn't appear... I mean, you and I would use it. You and I kind of, you know, we read the things, we we listen mm -hmm. to the things, we 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 consume the content in which that word might right. might you know naturally show up. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess that's not true of these kids, and it it doesn't show up generally speaking in the curriculum that they that mm -hmm. they um, you know that they face in school up to the point where they. Yeah, you it's true. It, uh, I'm sure that's true. And, I, and you know, I've become more aware as time goes by of how little I know about the media culture of people who are younger than 20. Uh -huh. Right. Like, like, I, 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 I know I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, right, that there's a vast amount of media that they consume that I have zero contact with yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right. or very little contact right. with, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. I mean, I get a little bit through my, uh, my oldest son, who's a freshman in high school. Right. That I, I can, you know, get a little bit of that, but um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I suppose that they're not being exposed to like in their, in youth, media consumption right yeah being exposed to things that that reflect on patriotism i did ask my oldest son if he thought his high school colleagues uh were uh basically patriotic we were talking about this this morning and um he said he thought that they were uh in in general now that's kind of a i think a regional and particular institution kind of thing um like the school has like prayer at the flag, like, you know, once a month kind of thing. So oh. it's a, it's a God and country kind of place. Right. But the, uh, but that's, you know, very, very particular. I think you're probably right, Rich, in, in general terms. But I, another question you could ask them though, is do your, do your fellow students know the word Patriot? Yeah. Yeah. Or patriotic. Right? That we they, ask. Is that in their vocabulary? They so, may be patriotic, mm -hmm. but they may not have a word for it. Mm -hmm. And, and and here's the thing, right? To throw a nod to um, you know Jacques Derrida and people like that, um, our vocabulary makes a difference in sure. the long run mm -hmm. in terms of the way we think. Yep. Right. I mean, like that's true. So um, and the left, of course, knows it, right? That's why they, that's why they tend to advocate for the use of certain words and suppress other words. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I do kind of imagine that maybe some residuals of patriotism may survive for a while after the word has fallen out of our vocabulary, mm -hmm. but it's pretty essential to get that word out of the vocabulary if you ultimately want to undermine patriotism sure. in the heart. So, um, 
anyway but that's just patriotism i think which is important but um and i would actually want to emphasize that you know it used to be considered patriotism was a species of piety correct yeah right and piety was regarded as a really essential virtue right yeah what did you say about virtue just said that it's it's like a an extension of the natural love of of family and friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So it it falls under the fourth commandment from a Catholic point of view, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so one thing I noticed in the survey, um, I noticed in the survey that um, religiosity in particular was in was in free fall. Um, the number of people who actually go to church on a weekly basis or more, mm-hmm. uh, according to that survey, is now at something like 19%. Mm. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty depressing, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, from our point of view. Sure. Obviously, if you place no value in religion, it's not depressing to you, but, um, <laughs> you know religions religions are that's what we're all about here so Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i mean i find that kind of i find that kind of depressing yeah Uh, people who have no they don't attend they don't attend church at all right is it's a pretty robust segment of the population yeah about 80 percent right and you know you've got these people who sort of for customary reasons i guess may darken the door of a church once a year or you know, every now mm-hmm. and every blue moon, right. but, um, you know, but I think that's, that reminds me of the, you know, that, that stuff in Nietzsche about, um, you know, not, not being ready to, to admit to yourself that you don't believe in God anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but you're basically, you're living your life as if he's irrelevant. So a yeah. more courageous person would just, would just admit where he stands. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. Uh, uh, was it the madman calls? Uh, what What are all these churches? But the yeah. the, the 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 tombs sepulchers. and sepulchers of God. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. A very startling image. Joe, you want to jump in here? Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, maybe going in reverse order to so the the patriotism question. I was I was wondering. So so a problem with a survey like this, if they don't define the term. Uh, sure. If they just say, "Hey, are you patriotic?" Then it's going to be whatever the the, uh, yeah. the person being polled understands by the word. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think what we understand is something like pride and love of country. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what other people understand, but I think that some people think that, for example, it would be um, that they shouldn't be patriotic right now because America needs so much reform. Mm-hmm. But then some of those same people might say that being patriotic is precisely driving america towards uh some leftist socialist progressive policy mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. and so i don't know even if if how accurately the data reflects the the cultural mind on this question mm-hmm. uh but it would yeah i don't so i don't know if, if this was defined clearly it doesn't seem that it was i know that there's one place in here where one respondent says that he understands uh patriotism to be uh it encompasses being part of your community and helping other Americans. Um, and this was a gentleman who, 
yeah, he served in the military, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly after, so he witnessed 9-11 and mm-hmm. then he went to the military. So he seems to have a sort of, I think, an idea of patriotism that we would be agreeable with, but I just mm-hmm. don't know how, uh, how broad that is. And then moving backwards, uh, I think there's a general trend. We sort of touched on this, but there's definitely a general trend in the polling data toward values that are more concerned with the self and less Mm -hmm. concerned with others and the broader community uh, all across the board. And I think, yeah, it's worth highlighting that this is antithetical to happiness, like a decrease in in patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement. These to some people would be the perfect recipe for having happiness, right? Mm -hmm. I am going to remove all of my responsibilities one by one until I just have myself left to see to. And they find themselves more miserable after all of that, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's, that's, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but when it comes to identifying causes, here's where I wish we had a little bit more data from the poll. Mm-hmm. So as, I, as I'm reading it here, we have data from 98, 2019, and, and 2023. And so the, you, I, I don't know like what those middle years look like, but a lot happened in that time. That's true. Um, and I don't. It's yeah, so it's going to be tough to identify causes, but I lean towards uh, what Bob was suggesting earlier in technology. Mm-hmm. My my general thought over all of this uh, is that I, I I want to argue about this with you guys, but I, I'm looking at the money valuation going up, but I'm not convinced that this is the sort of uh, love of money that begets just uh, greed and unlimited acquisition. I think there are there are some folks out there like that. And I think that there was at least a time in recent history where hustle culture was really, really big mm-hmm. and everybody wanted a side gig and to make a little bit more money than they were making now. But there at least recently has been, um, at least on social media, uh, that maybe our, uh, the youngsters are consuming. Uh, they talk about like silent quitting. Right. Maybe you've heard that yeah. term. Quiet quitting. Yeah. Quiet <laughs> yeah. quitting. Yeah, yeah. Quiet. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. Uh, just the idea being, you know, doing all the extra work to get that next promotion and the next pay bump is just not worth it. Right. But rather I'd be happier just kind of coasting with my present income. And I think that that trend actually dovetails well with the development of modern technology and especially mm. the internet and computers, because hedonism has become cheap yeah and so this is what i see overall like there's a there's a movement away from uh the responsibility of of loving and sacrificing for somebody else towards uh an inward seeking one's own apparent good Mm -hmm. um and if hedonism has become cheap and easily accessible not that not i mean you could always be a a hedonist even with a modest budget but you can be an extreme hedonist now with a very <laughs> modest budget. And, and, and of course, in many evil ways, there's lots of evil ways to find pleasure on the Internet. But there's a lot of, you know, healthy and worthwhile ways too, like uh, listening to podcasts from Catholic Studies Academy. Sure. You know? yeah, sure. Uh, I'm sure lots of people spend long hours doing things like that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, the point being that I'm not sure how much I want to read into the, the increased valuation of money. Mm-hmm. I think that there, there could very, it could very well be explained by uh, cost of living increases and people being more and more concerned with uh, making sure all their bills are paid. And I know there's a, 
I don't know the statistic offhand, but I know that a lot of people are in a position where if they were confronted with a, uh, a surprise expenditure uh, that they would really, really struggle to pay it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, that could I, be I think, why you're valuing money more is because you're just, right. you're concerned about staying alive rather than becoming rich. Yeah. I think what you're saying, um, I mean, I think you've arrived at the core, the core issue, right. Which is um, the turn toward the self and away from the other, right. Away from a, a, a world framed by duty and uh, responsibility, right. And concern for others and focused instead upon myself and the value of money that you see, I think you're probably right about what you're saying. I think it's not, it's not just that they want to live in some lap of luxury. Exactly. Right. It's that they, they know how to value money. They, they understand the value of money because it's all focused upon obtaining the satisfactions that they seek. They um, so they, it's a it's a bonum utile, right? But um, so the the study doesn't really show that they're valuing it as a bonum honestum when it's really a bonum utile. The bonum honestum that they value, at least a perceived bonum honestum, is their own self satisfaction, yeah. and for that for the sake of which, right, they value money, but they don't value family or the country or uh, religion for the for that for that end, nor in nor for their own sake. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, um, I think if, if I'm if I'm right about this, this cultural trend, which which was in uh, hustle culture for like the early 2000s, but is now giving way to quiet quitting and anti work culture. Uh-huh. Um, I think if it's a general movement just towards hedonism and turning inward, um, it could very well be that hedonism was uh, thought as we're developing into our new technological age here mm-hmm. to be uh, quite expensive. Mm-hmm. And then as it becomes cheaper and cheaper, YouTube, I can watch it all day long. You know, if I just suffer a few ads or even if I put an ad block around, I don't even have to do that. Right. Um, there's just endless sources of hedonistic entertainment available online sure, and offline. Uh, and it's cheap. And I think people are realizing it's cheap and that they are quite content to just yeah, live with mm-hmm. the free stuff because the free stuff is quite good. Yeah, and, and also the the, te- the the technology itself, right, is pretty addictive, right? In terms yeah, designed of, to be so, designed right? To be, yeah, right? yeah. In the way that it affects the brain, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's. I mean, I. I mean, I, I. Anybody can. This can happen to. I've occasionally caught myself doing the thing, right, with the phone, right, and you're and you're and you're like. I mean, that was 25 minutes ago. I started scrolling. What the heck am I doing? There's nothing like that. I'm not learning anything. I'm right. not, it's it's not even particularly bad. Like it's not even like I'm like it's porn or something. It's just just this little silly <laughs> next, story. The next after, after interesting thing. Story. Yeah, right, the next, yeah, the next, the yeah. next, like even slightly titillating headline That's or something, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, and it's it could suck a lot of your life away. Well, it's mm-hmm. addictive, like video games. Mm-hmm. Or even in in the early days, yeah. I remember sure. seeing fellow faculty members of mine just playing Pac Man for hours. I mean, they were getting <laughs> at it, but I mean, to, to what end? Sure. So let's. So, so Bob, I just you, I just you, wanted to throw in here real quick that just to the psychology of addiction and video games, and specifically, I know that big video game companies will hire uh, psychologists or at least psychological specialists 
specifically to make the sort of reward system in their games as addicting as possible to I design that just the perfect sound effect mm -hmm. to trigger a little dopamine hit for right. the kid. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's very um, manipulative predatory, you know, in a yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. So um, Bob, you, you had, so you had talked about those social satisfaction surveys, which are a fascinating thing. And really, I have to say, I, I think if I were a social scientist, which I'm not, I would probably focus on the, that issue. I, I think I would probably be most interested in that question. Mm -hmm. um, it, to me, it seems to be the big question today, right? Uh, are we getting more or less satisfied? Are we getting happier or more sad? Are, are the things that we're doing sociologically helping us or harming us um, or having no effect? Does it make no difference? And it seems to me that um, there's a, in my anecdotal experience of interacting with people, it seems to me that there is a general sense, like just a broad assumption, completely unsubstantiated by any evidence, that um, the that our contemporary sensibilities are reflective of improvements, right? Improvements to society that yield dividends in terms of human satisfaction and progress. Yeah, and I think that is false. And I think if we could, I think if we were to um, develop the right surveys, if we ask the right mm -hmm. questions. Uh, or even read the data that we currently have while asking the right questions about what lies behind them, we would discover that many, many of the changes that have happened in, to society over the past 60, 70 years have been to the detriment, not just coincidentally, but causally of our happiness. What do you think, Bob? Uh, yes. I, uh, we're violating the natural law. We're living in the world of artificial reality. Mm -hmm. and that, of course, is what, I mean, Aristotle had problems with, with that. There, nature ha it makes a call on us, our hearts, our minds, our spirits, uh, towards what is good, to an end that has purpose and meaning. And the endless quest for, for more money and for new and wild um, experiences and things like that just don't. They don't affirm what's deepest in our souls. Um, and I, th in fact, uh, when I taught this course um, for seniors on the history of citizenship and ethics, um, I would cool. start with uh, Aristotle and, and Cicero. Cicero, in particular, who I think mm -hmm. is—I mean, he's yeah. really the, the father of the internet, the natural law theory. Sure. And go to his what he calls the natural inclinations, things like the, the deeply embedded desire to preserve life, to keep our health, to the uh, the special care we take for our families, the love and the friendship that gives us meaning in our life, the public spiritedness to extend that to the to the local community, and to recognize how working together we can achieve greater goods with our fellow citizens, uh, the desire for freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, also, a the desire for what is good. We often misperceive that, but if we're truly aiming at what's good, it is, it's good for us. Uh, um, the, the deeply embedded uh, desire for happiness itself, 
and for beauty and for uh, work that is self-fulfilling and that is that serves the needs of, of others. Cicero's got all that right there in book one of his Deo Fides. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. When I would read that to the students, I say, okay, how much of this do you think is really true? And most of them are going, ah, it's, it's totally <laughs> what does that guy know? You know, <laughs> what's interesting is on the last day of class, I just, mm. just stand there and I say, okay, what is it that makes, makes you happy? What is it that you want? Well, happiness is one of them. But then they would, they would literally, they were plagiarizing Cicero. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the advantage of using him is he's a pagan. Mm -hmm. And sure. if they only knew that that uh, Jesus Christ had even more to say about this that's fulfilling and happy and true and good, mm. uh, it, it, that, that would be a revelation to them uh, as well. Um, when we looked at guys like Augustine and Aquinas, it was kind of like snooze time uh, for them. Mm. And yet at the, end of the, at the end of the class or the end of the day, they named the very things. Yeah, right, right. What yeah. Cicero ar articulates is complementary with sure. Christian tradition. Uh -huh. and this is the basis of Western civilization, which we're in the process of, of trying to trying to reject and doing a pretty good job of that. Sure. Well, you know, you know, uh, the uh that just makes me think of contemporary universities sometimes now have uh I know of a couple of universities that have like a vice president of belonging and uh and and even some governments you know that have like a a minister for happiness, you know, uh, which is sounds extraordinarily great. Like, I yeah. can't, I can't. First off, I, it's well, remarkable to me that nobody in the room was like, "That's too cringe," right? Like, <laughs> like somebody should have been like, "Wait, we can't actually say that, right? We got to come up with something else." Right? They're, they're reducing it to feelings, though. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Whereas, Greco-Roman philosophical and the Judeo-Christian sure. tradition doesn't. This isn't ultimately about feelings. It's about who we are. It's about grounded yeah. being. It's about yeah. the blessedness right. that can it's, exist. It's about your. It's about your excellence, right? And, and you know, <laughs> even death. Well, what's so remarkable, uh, you know, is that the, it's all kind of like right there. Like you're like Cicero is not some like extravagant, you know, person outside of the tradition or something. Like it's like. You know, these, this tradition is just there. It's, you know, even, uh, um, you know, even uh, like somebody like John Locke, you know, in his personal letters, you know, he says about happiness that happiness is the perfection of a rational nature. I mean, it's not like a, like some mysterious, you know, uh, uh, thing you're talking about, but I guess we've just forgotten. And one of the things that, again, it's kind of one of these ironies is those universities that have, have you know, uh, VPs for belonging, they are pointing to something true, yes. right? Which is that university students have these gigantic psychological problems and a crisis of identity, and and they feel isolated and all these sorts of things, right? And there's you know bad suicide rates and all that kind of thing. But I want to say, well, yeah, you cut away everything, right? Mm -hmm. That actually makes gives you an identity and gives you a sense of purpose, right, and meaning, and then you're like. Damn, why does why is everything so meaningless? <laughs> you know, yeah. why doesn't everybody feel like they belong? Well, you've gotten rid of the idea of uh, you know belonging to a country, belonging to a state. You you know you've undermined family and tradition, uh, carrying on your you know your family, the, all that sort of thing. Uh, you, when you've undermined all those things, 
What do yeah. you expect? Yeah, what do you expect? <laughs> you know? Well, what you get, right, is that people find other ways to understand their identity. Mm-hmm. So if they can't if they can't find some patriotic identity in the whole or in the community, they find and they they're finding them through the internet more often than right, not. Right, yeah. Other communities, right, that they um with you know like there's all sorts of identity-based politics and communities right. uh sure. where we de- we devolve into these tribes yeah um, and that's that's exactly what happens it's a yeah. substitution for yeah. received culture that's right yeah yeah and it's the, the the problem is i think one factor that plays into this is um the institutions that we have in our our world today the international institutions Mm. The national institutions that see their goal as getting rid of their national sovereignties in favor of a global, you know, um, uniform kind of a, a cultural mm. culture worldwide. Uh, and the way the people who occupy positions of authority and responsibility in those agencies regard their work, which is to literally to undermine the role of the family and of religion. Mm-hmm. And I know this from my personal experience in 40 years of college teaching. I used in the 1980s, people I knew on faculty would brazenly say, our job is to rip these kids, these silly, superstitious, patriotic, religious kids away from their families and and show them how they really need to think. And so for many of them, it was, I mean, that's a very insidious thing, obviously, but that's what they thought their responsibility was as a, as a college professor. Hmm. And you have them teaching generations of kids that are then going out into the public school systems and even the private school systems with these, the latest new ideas that are usually regurgitated about every 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so you have this sort of, you're preparing the culture then for further manipulation. Just one example of that. In 2007, there was a, because I followed international organizations in the UN system, I was kind of trying to track what I already saw as cultural decay that was manipulated by institutions in bureaucracies where you, nobody takes responsibility, right? For a bad idea that really hurts things. Um, They had a conference of 251 so-called group of experts on sex, sexual expression and sexual identity in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. And they, they produced a, a manifesto of all kinds of, of um, uh, targeted strategic plan goals for how to undermine families, how to penetrate into local school boards and local mm. um, public education systems, especially through the media, through the universities, through mm. government uh, social progressive programs to sort of remake the way people think about family and even gender. Mm-hmm. And of course, gender was the big focus. Sure. Then. And I remember at the time of, uh, uh, looking, reading that stuff and going, nah, this is, this is really crazy, insane stuff. It can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But then, then five years later, this was already beginning to happen. And right. Gabrielle Kubi and others were beginning to write about this because she was right in the heart of the belly of the beast on that stuff. Mm. And it was, it just, I got, it gets depressing how quickly we can move in, in one uh, in Obama proclaiming traditional marriage along right. with the vice president. And then towards the middle of his second term, no, there's no such thing as traditional marriage. You know, right. we right. need to have 
any, anything goes. Period. Right. Bob, can I ask you, do you, do you th- see that movement as an annihilation of culture or as a replacement of one culture with another? I think they're moving towards a, the idea is to have a global uh, culture, a global uh, disposition uh, that will allow the manipulators in the various institutions of high culture to dictate this kind of thing to people. Mm. So it's social progressivism on steroids is what it mm. is. So what the, would I, what I, would the I content, think, okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Rich. Go ahead. I think the, the, to go back to Joe's question though, right? Let's, let's refine it. Um, is, is that end that they seek? There's something uniform that they seek for sure. Power. But is it, it's not, but it's not really a culture, is it? Right. I mean, I think my inclination is to say they're trying to displace culture as such and substitute for it some kind of human mechanism of control, some sort of institutionalization mm. or something. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it's I mean, I think, really I, I think there's going to be some kind of culture. You can't have, I think, no, you human can't. society without some kind of culture, but it could be very uh, ephemeral, uh, very uh-huh. hedonistic, yeah. very debilitating, um, that sort of thing, especially if Bob is right with respect to that the goal is power for a certain group, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, if, the goal is, if the goal is power, you might say, well, for the people or for the many, I want there to be this kind of almost maybe enslaving. I kind of want them to be addicted to video games. Right? Yeah. You, have, you have to be tolerant, you intolerant people of any idea I want to put forward. <laughs> and, right. and I'm going to force it down your throats. That's where we're at right now. With you'll have nothing and you'll be stuff. happy. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know, it folds into the the Great Reset um, mm-hmm. and the, some of the worries about institutionally at the global level how um, elites are moving towards a, a global economy, a global currency under their mm-hmm. control, the, the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but this this is old stuff, right? It is in a way about political regimes and Plato sure. and Aristotle. I mean. Sure. Where does tyranny come from? Right. You know, it's all about I've got the power and I have the ability to do what mm-hmm. I want, regardless mm-hmm. of what anybody else wants to do. Right. So tyrannies yeah. existed in the ancient world and we've got tyrannies in, in the modern world as well. Sure. It is interesting to me, like I, for my own part, I don't mind that there are elites in society. I kind of think there's always going to be yeah. some people who are the leaders and have power. Um, what's interesting to me is that they don't, you know that you could be an elitist and a patriot. Those are not uh-huh. antithetical things, right? I mean, I think of like uh, you know, obviously some of the founding fathers or you know some of the great you know figures in American history were both part of the elite, right? Uh, and uh, you know, we're patriots. Um, what's interesting is that the is the desire to be elite and not have these other constraints, I guess, or these other you know, this other content that would, you know, define your elite status, right? Um, you know, instead of being an aristocrat in America or something like that, that's very American, you know, we want, I want a global power or some sort of, you know, I mean, that's the part that's that's kind of, it's interesting to me that, that that's a shift, it seems to me, because you could have, you could even have a tyrant, right, maybe who still wanted, you know, like, it's my country that's that's conquering all the others, right? You know. Yeah, and you can have a you can have a monarch who isn't a tyrant who really sure. respects the 
the interests of the of the people as a whole mm. that they have a responsibility for. So you think mm. like of somebody like King Saint Louis, Louis of France, right? You know, who invited poor people every night into his sure to eat with them and to wash their feet in imitation of Christ. Now that would be looked on at me. Well, that's kind of silly and stupid today, but mm-hmm. have power if you use it if you use it rightly and well for mm-hmm. the good, for the common good, as Aristotle referred to it. Right. And that that can be a really good government, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it has to do with personal motivations. Sure. Those who have the power. Yeah, I mean that, that you can't get. It's hard to get away from the character there, right? Uh, is important. Uh, I tend to think that you know. Uh, I tend to think that the that the corruption of the elite is what matters the most, right? And this is obviously an ancient philosophy view, right? The, the, the corruption uh-huh. of the best is the worst. Yeah. Uh, and Not that there are elites, but just that they are corrupt is the problem. Well, yeah, yeah, right. And and uh, I wonder at what point it feels to me like at some point are the elites the leadership class, the leadership families in the Western countries um, just decided that the national project wasn't important to them anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I'm wondering, like, like, their corruption seems to be what matters most. You know, in the 1950s, college professors tended to be rather conservative, right? Through the first part of the 20th century, universities especially state universities tended to be kind of stodgy places right like a lot of state institutions they were just kind of you know they weren't places local parentis for instance that's uh, right exactly right had a responsibility to work with the family to yeah yeah yeah. grow the values that were brought to the school that's right that's right yeah yeah and then it changed right in the 60s and it seems as if like you know that's the that around in that time our leadership class just started to move away from, well, you know. Part of, part of that has to, I mean, after World War II, especially, I think if you look at it historically, okay. it started even earlier than that, but especially after World War II, when the United States specifically began to recognize its global responsibilities mm-hmm. and to sort of every, every, what was happening everywhere in the world was a matter of interest to us during the Cold War. Right. Um, congressmen and, Senators, even then, were getting big kickbacks oh, for their families, yeah. right? From foreign aid that was offered abroad, and the purpose behind foreign aid then was no longer really to help countries uh, develop out of poverty. It was mm-hmm. to sustain a poverty industry in which governments and especially mm-hmm. bureaucratic systems were siphoning huge amounts of money off for what their humanitarian efforts were doing right and taking kickbacks hmm. foreign uh, officials who received the money most of those were were highly corrupt governments gotcha want to keep the money coming in then you have to give some of it back yeah. <laughs> you know it's interesting it's yeah. interesting um bob i don't want to get too uh sidetracked on that particular issue but yeah um it's an interesting issue and uh-huh. and i it it reminds me actually of a presentation that was done when we were, when Ben and I were at Aquinas college. I, I don't remember if Joe was still there at the time in the Socratic club that Ben used to lead. Um, we had a student who did a presentation on foreign aid and whether, 
whether it was a good or a bad thing and Mm -hmm. he he argued that it was a bad thing based upon the out based upon the actual outcomes and he he demonstrated in his um in his presentation that there's a direct correlation between between the uh, foreign aid that we send to other countries <laughs> and their decline into uh, more debilitating poverty. The data is there. I've started out in my career as a young idealistic guy that was really as a Catholic. You know, we gotta we gotta attend to the, yeah, the social concern. Problem. Right. But then after 10 years, there's no improvement. After 15 years, it's even worse. After 20, there there's it's counterindicative foreign uh-huh. policy. Right. Yeah. And and then finally, you have to say, this is all about those who have power taking mm-hmm. tax dollars in ways that supposedly do good, but it pre- it creates a perpetual global industry mm-hmm. that they alone benefit from. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's even Chesterton recognized yeah. back in the day, yeah. right? A long, long time ago. I mean, we're talking about maybe a hundred years ago, right? At this point, that he would have said this, that um, that there seems to be a current in um in the upper classes right to create right. a permanent underclass right yeah, they addressing they want that as a goal of government yeah yeah um, that is a social progressive idea is that a technical elite the people who are in the know who have the knowledge who are the experts should should um, direct families and individuals how to live their lives and, and we see mm-hmm. that in the whole transgender movement in the public schools right now right and and faculty in these in teaching in high schools thinking that they have the right to determine whether a kid needs to you know do a a transgender move here and the parents have no right to even know about that yeah so so let me let me go back into the data that we're looking at here a little bit and point to maybe another trend that we see in society in the west and um and maybe it'll offer sort of a counter narrative right that that would give her a, a glimmer of hope so um when you look at these kind of you know woke uh issues right um the the survey suggests that they're losing political issues if you look at the the respondents right uh-huh. Sure. Have we gone too far or as far as we need to? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, you, you don't have a position on it. The right. aggregate of those things is pretty significant majority of the population. Sure. Yeah. It, uh, um, there's some interesting studies correlated with that, uh, which have come out recently regarding mm-hmm. Generation Z. Right. Yeah. Uh, and they uh, oddly enough, that generation seems to be all over the place. But one thing that they the the one area that was interesting was a pretty strong consensus that uh, society has done too much to equalize the place of women in the workplace, yeah. which was really surprising, right? Like, really, like women. And then yeah. they also said something similar about racial diversity. Good. Yeah, probably because probably because they, um, you know, their eyes don't lie, mm-hmm. right? What do they actually see in the workplace? Do they see a disproportionate number of men versus women occupying positions of authority or their bosses at the places they work or whatever? No, no, they don't. I don't see those things. So, um, in the in the data on the poll, though, the the section on has our society gone too far? 
The percentage yeah. of people who say it's gone too far on promoting equality between men and women is actually relatively low. Only two mm-hmm. percent of the too Democrats. Far, but look at the next one that says it's gone far enough. The aggregate there. I think most people are either satisfied or they think it's gone too far, which means that the push to just keep barreling forward is going to is not going to get is not going to get a great deal. You see what I mean? Yeah. Now that I'm pointing to that only because. Only because um, there's another trend in society, right, which is there, there does seem to be if you look at the politics in Europe, right, and to a great extent in the United States, there, there's definitely fragmentation. But one of the major fragments is the push toward nationalism, populism. And um, that, that's getting a bit, that's got a bad rap in sort of the mainstream media and in the establishment. But, but um, look at, say, the, the Dutch farmers, right? Mm-hmm. Here they were um, being told to call their herds being told that they um they needed to stop using fertilizer and this is like one of the biggest agricultural industries in the entire world (laughs) other nations depend upon their produce to survive so you're asking a a major segment of your economy uh, of, of the breadbasket of large portions of the human population across the globe to tighten the belt and you know possibly starve mm-hmm. uh, because you have some eco agenda and they were like okay no this is where <laughs> we draw the line <laughs> and they and they became they they became the largest political party they turned mm-hmm. into a political party and became the largest political party in the netherlands and now they are in power yeah they won that so, one that was great that's one example mm-hmm. of trends that are taking hold all over the place mm-hmm. and you know the whole like the whole sort of um move in the republican party toward populism mm-hmm. in the united states is only one example of that sort of thing it's not some oddity in the united states it's part of a large trend happening throughout the western world mm-hmm. now how that relates exactly to all the findings and the surveys and the turn toward the self and selfishness. It's hard to square that, but it seems to me, right. That in a world in which people have abandoned meaning and become characters in an Albert Camus novel, (laughs) right. Um, There, there's a sizable segment of the population that says, no, we can't live that way. Mm, Sure. And, and that segment of the population um, I just I guess I want to say there's a lot of this story left to be told, and I sure. whether it ends in whether this decline ends in the in the um, the complete deterioration and loss of Western culture or a renewal of Western culture through the reclamation of you know kith and kin and right hearth and home uh, that remains to be seen. There, you know, there is in Catholic social thought this the the, the kind of uh, related ideas of genuine solidarity, uh, desiring the well-being of others in, in a community, and the idea of subsidiarity, which gives to the individual the right to do those things that they can accomplish best for themselves, given their own talents and so on. They, 
uh, the role of the family, of neighborhoods, and of local associations, of church communities and local levels to work with families to, to strengthen virtue and, the, uh, and, and their adherence. Um, and then of, of local and regional state governments to have their, their autonomy and that kind of thing. So there is that leaves if we if we I think when you push people too hard, you begin to see, you know, subsidiarity really is at, is at work. The parents mm -hmm. of Plowdown County, for instance, in mm -hmm. Virginia, finally, th th when they discovered what the schools were doing, just and these weren't these weren't conservative Trump types that came out creating right. the board that they were doing. It was it was parents who were concerned about what these so-called experts were doing to their kids. Mm -hmm. Came too close to home, right. and now they realize, well, we got to get active here. You know, mm -hmm. meantime, you got the Justice Department treating them as terrorists and <laughs> things like that. So they're, and that's where we're at right now. It's it's a cultural civil war that we're in right now. The outcome of which I believe, with you, Rich, is yet undetermined because I think there are a lot of people with common sense and goodwill on both sides of the political spectrum. That just go. Wait a minute. This is insanity. We've got to return to sane policies that affirm family life, basic things like basic patriotism, hard work, justice, con real concern about others. So, uh, to to Dr. Bulzi Kelly's uh, thought earlier, and to yours as well, uh, Bob. The originally we were looking at the survey data, and I think we were right uh, as well to see a general trend toward hedonism. Um, but you're, you, we're both, or you're both indicating points of resistance here or certain limits in that pursuit where people say, okay, actually, maybe this is, this is where we, we need to draw some sort of line. And I think what we need to maybe remember here is that the hedonist isn't just some guy uh, who can only appreciate pleasure. Right. But he's always after what is good for him. And a, a pleasure is a good, uh, a bodily good. There are just ordered and disordered pleasures when we find some good for some part of the body that is in order with the good of the whole. It's a good pleasure. And we find some pleasure that's good for some part of the body, but out of order with the whole. It's not a good pleasure. Uh, but pleasure in itself always has some aspect of good and desirability. It's I think what we're seeing in the limitations being um, that people are, are, are drawing is that other things are being denied as good, which people still have a natural inclination to affirm as good. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, there is like, there's always this tension though. And, and it's the tension that shows itself right in the survey data, like about having a family. Mm -hmm. Most people in some abstract way want to have a long-term committed relationship with somebody um, and most people in some abstract way can affirm the good of children and can affirm the good of like seeing somebody that you're looking after really succeed. Uh, I think most people would affirm that, but what they, what they struggle with are those parts of it that require some sort of labor, which <laughs> is not pleasurable for the body. Right. right. So there's, there's, there's that old tension between certain pleasures that are good for some part of the body, but not good for the whole. And in those goods to which we naturally incline, but which are arduous. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so we're seeing the limit, I think, where pleasure can only get us so far, but that mm -hmm. it has to be anchored in the real natural goods that our nature inclines to. 
uh, in order to have any sort of meaning yeah. or ultimate desirability. But going, going back to that the, sounds right. Going back that to sounds the, right, Joe. Going back to the happiness question. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're getting more and more data now that um, some of the paths we've taken are are ultimately dead ends, mm-hmm. and um, you see this. For example, we've we've done a really good job at undermining the institution of marriage uh, and family in our society, right? And leaving aside um, the problem, and it is a definite problem of out of wedlock um, birth and and children being raised in single parent homes. Leaving aside that issue, which you know that that's easy enough to go and do your own research on. Um, one thing I want to point to is the loneliness epidemic that now infects people in middle age and up. That um, and you know is 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 also I think felt by younger people, but they can't maybe put their finger on it exactly. Um, I think though it's becoming really palpable in people middle age and up. Um, women, for example, who have um, foregone marriage for the sake of you know living their own best lives or whatever, and now now they're forty, fifty years old or so, sixty, and they're dying inside. Um, so I, it does seem to me, you're right, Joe, that this, we're moving in ways that are contrary to our nature. We're trying to affirm some limited goods as if they were, as if it was a bonum honestum, right? Uh, and the real true good we are, we're ignoring. And if at the end of that road is something really, really unpleasant. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's probably correct, Rich. Uh, so if I was to, to kind of, uh, in listening to what we you guys have put forward here, there's kind of a, a, a couple of different hypotheses here. Um, you know, we have the uh, hedonism, you know, abetted by technology, uh, Joe has talked about. We've also, all of you have addressed the idea of a flawed pursuit of happiness, right? Um, and a sort of distorted view of happiness, Uh as well as, um, you know, talking about that part of our decline is due to our elite seeking power, right? There's three interesting, you know, uh, explanations, I think, of uh, uh, the decline we, we see here. I want to throw one other in, and I know we're go- we're getting uh, towards our end here, but uh, just throw one other in. There's several that I've thought about with respect to the history of philosophy and uh, past philosophical um, sort of conceptions of political life. Uh, but one that um, that comes to mind here uh, for me is uh, the issue of uh, diversity. Um, I think, you know, that Aristotle was pretty clear, and I think other uh, ancient philosophers as well, that you needed to have a high degree of uh, unified ethnos, right, in your society. Um, I think, you know, that can mean, when you bring that up, of course, it sounds a little scary at first, Right. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I, I think it's just true, right? If you look at most countries historically, right, there is a, a kind of um, ethnic solidarity there, right? Uh, a kind of unified tribe, right, um, that is uh, part of it. Um, now, I don't think that ethnicity is the whole of it, right? The ethnos includes a culture, Right, an ethos, uh, a way of being, 
certain narratives, but it is important, right? That is that there is a, a unified underlying sense of fellow feeling and friendship, right? Even kinship with uh, your fellow citizens, right? Um, historically, um, you know, we French, right? Or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or us Greeks against those Persians, right? You know, the Greeks are quite happy to fight each other, of course, right? But they were very clear, we're not the Persians, right? Yeah. And we're willing to we're willing to go to the mat to not be gobbled up by the Persian Empire because it's important to be Greek, right? Mm-hmm. Being Greek is great, right? You know, I mean, there, there's got to be a little bit, there's got to be some of that in your, um, in your DNA, right, as a society. Uh, or I think you're, you're, you're going to end up just not even having the, um, the virility to continue as a society, right? Uh, and I think that uh, where like, and this comes down even to I think you know we it, like uh, there's an essay I'm, I'm kind of working on called Natural Law is Not Enough, and it's about the idea of custom and culture, right? Mm-hmm. That natural law is wonderful, it's great, it's real, it's objective, it's universal, but we're we're not universal, we're particulars, right? We live in a time and place, and that natural law has to be mediated through right a society uh that gives us particular customs and ways of living out right the natural law precepts um and that's going to include a little bit of for lack of a better word chauvinism or patriotism towards yeah it's great to be greek i love being greek right uh and i'm not going to let those persians conquer us um that sort of thing uh what do you guys think about that well i think i think that's true i think um, uh, that it's true that people do identify more intensely with their local communities. Historically, that's true, certainly, and with their nations. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, the nation being thought of as a, or the country as being, you know, related to a particular cultural tradition and a nationality. Um, but there's what, and here, here's where we go to theology, and as Christians, we go to Christ himself who gave a gospel that was for all the nations. Mm-hmm. So in addition to, which respects the nation, mm-hmm. and the peoples, but which is for all the nations to, to show how they can live in greater peace and harmony mm-hmm. while affirming their own customs and, and traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's, the ideal, that's the ideal posture, it, it seems to me. Um, and, and in fact, and now that we've blown up nations, and we and now we even see this populist revival, which in some sense I think is a good sign, but it also can be unhealthy because it can sort of lead to the kind of it could lead to the fascism that we saw in the early 20th century. Fascism now is was then and actually is now still a leftist ideology um, because it's about centralization of power in the hands of the of the state, economic and, and political power. So the gospel, uh, the church has a role to play in this. And, you know, it hasn't, I think John Paul II and, and Benedict understood the importance of affirming the value of ethnicity and of nation, but not at the expense of the, of the community of the church, the universal community of the church. So even Augustine, when he writes his, 
you know, city of God is he sees multiculturalism, but he even says he, he uses the word even that the church makes no scruple about culture. It's it's a proposition of the human good to all of humanity, to the family of man. Mm. Um, and it's not to be forced. It's to it should be an attractive magnetic kind of a, a call of peoples to exercise charity towards all. And in fact, you see that to some extent, even in the Stoic tradition originating sure. in Greece and then developed by Seneca and Cicero and others in the, in the Roman mm-hmm. setting, this idea of the need for a universal brotherhood. So the, the problem is we've gone off the rails because the people that are in charge <laughs> of governments today and of international agencies are don't have this understanding, this textured, rich understanding of the value of nation and of nationality and of the good of of a the city of god operating mm-hmm. within the city of man leveling mm-hmm. towards virtue and goodness and cooperation and, and earthly peace yeah let mm-hmm. me give you an analogy here that may help this um i think I, I know what you're saying but this analogy i think will be helpful so um i think there are two competing views between you know um the modern liberal progressive globalist kind of thing and a more traditionalist understanding of reality um the more traditionalist understanding of reality which i think is true to christianity and allows for the phenomenon of what we would describe as christendom mm-hmm. um is a model based upon a kind of fractal um concept right so there is a universality that's achieved in the church under the one true God, right? So a universal kingdom of God. And beneath that, you can have um, local re- more local realities, right? And in the church, those things have been reflected, for example, right, at one layer, in the various rites in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in political organizations, right, in political communities going down even further right you, you ultimately go all the way to um you know the the sub communities your your um your counties your towns mm-hmm. and within the towns your families and so um the fact that i have a family and i seek its good and it's not the same as the next guy's family doesn't mean that i have anything against the next guy's family or that yeah, yeah. you know what i mean um there's no hostility in my pride for being a member of my family and my loving my children and caring for them even more than I care for the next guy's kids. Right. Um, I'll, I'll work for the good of my neighbor's kids, but not at the expense of my own kids well-being. Right. I mean, that's because I have an obligation. I have a duty and that's a good thing. So um, the alternative is not a fractal view where each part resembles the whole right but instead mm-hmm. a one kind of uniform structure where um ultimately everything that lies between the highest level and the bottom level is um is just either evaporated or turned mm-hmm. into a kind of instrument that gets us that yeah. connects us down yeah. to the bottom yeah. layer. That's that's modern Gnosticism in in its communist and socialist form. That's what that's what they're going for. Right. That means destroying 
the little subunits of society that are so necessary to the good of the whole. Right. Or subverting yes. them to, to, right. to a merely instrumental condition. That's right. Yeah, so, so, so there's this middle uh, that I think Dr. Smith is trying to identify, right, where we can be patriotic uh, right. without having this universal globalist society and without having a Mussolini fascism. Right. Yeah. Um, now, what I wonder how I've been reading Thucydides with my students uh, recently, and I'm, I'm always struck by how Thucydides says that the war between Sparta and Athens was inevitable. Uh, right? And I, I'm wondering how how much we're still reeling from World War One, World War Two, precisely in this respect, mm -hmm. like uh, Sparta and Athens were different and they were both growing stronger and that brought them to a head. And uh, arguably, folks in the past, uh, you know, 50, 75 years are just deeply concerned with peace. And if there's all these different competing uh, political theories out there that can't mutually coexist, right. uh, perhaps then war would be inevitable again. Right. And maybe we just need to make everybody the same so that we're all on the same page and we just won't fight each other. Anymore. Yeah, of course, ironically, that's its own political ideology that uh, is incompatible with others. Yeah. Right. So I'm not sure it actually escapes the problem. Yeah, and what, yeah. what we actually see is maybe a greater degree, and we do see a greater degree of international peace, but we're not seeing civil peace inside. Right. Yeah. The yeah. Of it. It's it's a right. Or even in the United States, mm. in the major urban centers where Antifa, which calls itself anti-fascist, but is actually a very fascist uh, kind of an organization, and BLM and others, you know, just run ramshackle over over urban centers of this country you know it's and so now we've got the fracturing of the blue state sure. <laughs> and the internal migration as people leave california and right right like texas or florida well yeah i think that's right and, and that's a good uh a good uh point there bob to kind of uh start to wrap up on is that internal migration because that might hold some hints at like maybe uh some solutions here as we as we close up i just give each of you a chance to to say maybe you know what, what what do you think is the one thing right uh that you would identify sorry joe the one thing you would identify as the most useful most effective in terms of pushing us in the other direction away from decline bob we'll start with you if you, if you don't mind i think the church has to step up and do what it what Jesus called it to do. Okay. It needs to deal with the brokenness that already exists within the church itself. It needs to re-evangelize itself and show what the human good can actually look like to others. Okay. That's pretty clear. Vegetables Kelly. Yeah. Um I, I could say a lot, but I won't. I'll only okay. just concentrate <laughs> on an interest that that I've been pursuing for um a while recently, and that is the um the need to reaffirm the idea of um of unchosen obligations mm -hmm. to me i think if we, if we can recover that idea uh that'll go a long way to healing this problem because it, it it's precisely because we we no longer possess that concept mm -hmm. uh in our society that that many of these problems arise right we're not patriotic because patriotism relies on the idea of an unchosen obligation we don't believe in mm -hmm. family anymore we don't value it we don't want children unchosen obligations right we promote abortion 
because we don't have unchosen obligations. There's no mm. concept that something might fall to me to do. I have a responsibility towards something, whether I chose it or not. It seems to me that that's a real issue, right? Recovering unchosen obligations as a concept that that governs our lives. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, I laughed at your question a bit, Dr. Smith, because I think we're playing the chess game here. And okay. you're asking me like, all right, you can move one piece and you got to get a checkmate. <laughs> Not possible. Well, right? just advance the game. Just advance. Okay. Just, well, yeah. make improvement on your side. The thing is, so there's, there's each of these issues I think we've been identifying throughout the conversation need an individual sort of response. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that at bottom, the most important one is this turning inward. It seems like mm-hmm. a lot of this started with that. I think the technology was there and allowed for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the technology wouldn't have taken off if people weren't so ready to just turn in on themselves. Right, right. <laughs> now, um, that that goes all the way back to Aristotle's politics and his ethics and the education of habits that begins in children at the very youngest age. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we're all educators here. And we know that sometimes uh, students come to us and they're their habits are so well disposed that they can be formed in an excellent way. And then they go mm-hmm. on to be excellent self-sacrificing members of society worthy of right. emulation. But right. if that's not started earlier, um, that makes it difficult. Right. Um, so I don't know, educational reform, but that's really the sort of education I'm talking about is the kind of education that happens in the household, not the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Um, so. And it presupposes a stable family. But yeah. that's why I think the church is so important because the church, that's what the church has done historically is to help to, to come to the support of families in need in a whole mm-hmm. variety of ways, educationally, socially, economically. So that's all, right. All of it. And then, and then recognizing there is, a, there's also, there's also an unchosen benefit that we get every day. It's called grace. <laughs> and right. are we actually aware that it's there then it, then it actually can help to improve us in our situations yeah yeah that's that's good and that's probably at bottom most important is um reaffirming the household reconstructing mm-hmm. that from the ground up because um underneath all this data is the decline of the family in mm-hmm. in in a hundred different ways mm-hmm. um so at least being more attentive to that but that's of course that's a vocation, right? That's a challenge. <laughs> That's, so right. That's right. We can't, it's easier said than done. Sure, sure. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, I was interested in this article and interested in hearing your opinions and thoughts on uh, uh, on you know sort of this uh, state of decline. It's not a happy topic, but it is a topic that's you know relevant and worth. Uh, thinking about especially as educators and fathers um you know and uh um you know it's it's, it's something you know it's it is important um so anyways thanks so much i really appreciate um uh your your contributions today um for those of you who enjoyed our conversation please like it please share it with others uh, if you haven't already subscribed to our youtube channel please do so uh, until next time god bless